0: Hi, this is Chad. I'm so glad to be part of your journey towards product mastery. This podcast is sponsored today by PDMA, the Product Development and Management Association. PDMA is a global community of professionals whose skills, expertise, and experience power the most recognized and respected innovative companies in the world. PDMA is also the longest running professional association for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Having started in 1976, there's a good depth of body of knowledge available from them. I've really enjoyed being a member of PDMA as well for more than a decade, finding the resources and the network very valuable. You can learn more about them at pdma.org. And PDMA invited me to their conference, which is in Orlando, Florida, towards the end of the year. you are listening to this later, but I had the chance to interview several speakers live. And the speaker spoke on the topic, Lean Product Management, How to Achieve Product Market Fit. And our guests will teach us a simple but effective process for creating successful products. This is Dan Olson. Dan is a returning guest of the podcast. He is a well-known product management trainer, consultant, and speaker. He's also the author of the best-selling product management book, The Lean Product Playbook. Highly recommended, others have been talking about it at the conference as well. Through his talks and interactive training workshops, Dan helps companies build great products and strong product teams. As always, listeners, if you want a written summary of everything we discuss, including a one-page action guide of the key takeaways that Dan will share with us, simply go to productmasterynow.com 424. Dan, thanks for hanging out. Thanks, Chad. It's great to be here with you again. So, not only do you have a workshop on the Lean during the conference, you are also our MC yesterday. What was it like being an MC?
1: That was great. I was excited to MC the day yesterday. We had a full day, keynote speakers, breakout sessions, and it was a lot of fun. And uh, The energy level was really high. People were excited, people from all over the country and from a lot of different backgrounds. I think people, especially coming off of COVID, really valued being able to network and meet other people. Yep. So, there's a lot of good energy and positivity. Um, and uh, great food. The Hershey's people. The Hershey won the Corporate Innovators Award, and so they brought a lot of their goodies: Reese's peanut butter cups, Kit Kats, and yes. the New York, the York peppermint patties. I'm a huge Reese's fan, so I was trying to me too. Trying to moderation, but they were yummy. They talk. They showed their thins, the new thin ones that are half as thick as the
0: normal ones, which are. Pretty, pretty tough to resist. Yeah. It's interesting that their market segments have gone both directions, right? From the original one there, there's people that really want the thin, crispier, less peanut butter in the middle, and others that they now have the big size, which right. is the maximum peanut butter amount.
1: And it's funny that once I took a picture of their slide, because it's like where you get to see detailed product stats or innovation for products that, you know, like a peanut butter cup, but they have the peanut butter ratio slide to how the percentage of peanut butter in the different ones. Yeah. So it was cool. Yeah. So... It's funny because back in the day they just had the one size, and then as you said, they've gone smaller, they've gone bigger. So it was kind of cool. To, it was really cool to hear from them about that. Yeah, it was fun.
0: So yeah, I appreciate you coming out to them. the I was in contact with some people about the conference beforehand, and they told me you were coming. They were all excited. I was excited. Yeah, thanks for helping out with the conference. I'm
1: excited too. Like you said, we're here in lovely Orlando. It's 80 degrees outside, and we're right near the park. So everyone's. We had a great excursion to Epcot last night, yes, which PDMa organized. It's a good awesome.
0: You just hop on a bus and they took care of everything and got to see Epcot. So it was awesome. It was cool. Very good. And your book, the lean product and process you're going to teach today. So the lean product process has six steps Mm -hmm. you're going through. And I was hoping you could just give us a acquaintance to those steps so we can learn how to use a lean product process ourselves. You got it. Yeah, definitely.
1: I'd be happy to. The product market fit pyramid is basically like the key framework and it's got five layers in it. And each of those layers is one of the steps, basically. And you start at the bottom and you work your way up. The bottom layer is target customer. I'll give a quick overview and then we can go through each of the steps. The bottom layer is target customer. Everything starts with that. Who are we trying to create value for? Whose pain points are we trying to address? And then the next layer up, and like a real pyramid, the idea is each layer built on top of the layers beneath it. The second layer is for that customer, what are their underserved needs? And, and we want to focus on needs before we jump to solutions. And there's a, I'll talk about what does underserved really mean and how do we talk about that. But basically taken together, those two bottom layers are the market. And if you look in an economics or marketing textbook, it'll say a market is a group of people that share a set of common needs. Mm-hmm. So those are the bottom two layers. And then there's a gap. And then we get into the product layers, which are the ones that you control. So you can target a market. You can't tell them what to do. They make their own purchase decisions and usage decisions. You can try to influence those, but what's in your control are the three product layers. The first of which is value proposition, which is, okay, which benefits are we going to say our product actually delivers to customers and how is it going to do so in a way that's better than the competition? That's where we get into differentiation. The next layer up is your feature set or functionality, and the way to think about that is the features deliver the benefits in your value prop, and this is where the concept of MVP comes in, minimum viable product, so we don't overscope things before we've confirmed. Right? One way to think about this is the five layers of the pyramid are the five hypotheses you need to get right enough in order to achieve product market fit. If any one is off, it's going to prevent you from having it. And then the final layer at the tip of the pyramid is UX, user experience. Right? So the users interact with the user experience to use your functionality, to enjoy the benefits in your value prop. And so basically the lean product process is you just start at the bottom, with step one who's our target customer and you, you write down your hypotheses your assumptions about that you work your way up to step two what do we think the underserved needs are what do we think our value proposition should be what do we think our feature set should be let's work through the ux and then the lean product process is one final step where we take that user experience and we close the loop with the bottom of the pyramid we go out and test it with customers whether it's a prototype which i'm a huge fan of using to test your ideas or a live product we close the loop to see where we're at with product market fit and we iterate those assumptions and hypotheses until we get to the level of product market fit that we want, or pivot, or per- we decide if we want to persevere or not. So basically, that's it. And now yeah, we can go through each step a little bit in more detail, but that's the that's macro a process good overview
0: in, yeah. in a nutshell. Yes, and there was a lot there for sure. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to unravel a little bit, talk about each one So Sure. What led you to this? What, what was your experience? It's a great
1: question, Chad. So basically, I've been consulting for a long time, and I stumbled into being a consultant because I was. I decided, hey, you know what, like the web's here to stay, and I went and took all these coding classes. I just said, let me just bite the bullet. So I was taking like 20 hours a week of HTML, CSS, JavaScript, PHP, MySQL, Apache, Photoshop, like all the things you needed, right? Because I've been coding since I was a kid, I just didn't know these web languages. And I got an offer to be a VP of product at a startup, and I really liked the team and what they were doing, but I was like, hey, I can't take a full-time job with you guys, because. I'm taking 20 hours a week of classes. So that's how I became like this interim VP of product, which is how I started my career, which was a lot of fun. And one of the one of the good side effects of that was I got to see a lot of different companies. If you work in a company for three, four, five, seven years, you just see that company. When you're a consultant changing every 12 to 18, 24 months, you see a lot of at-bats and you see all these different teams and different spaces and what's working here, what's not working. And then I also got into speaking and teaching workshops. And it was actually at one workshops and after each talk i would get questions from pms and i would that would lead to new slides and new content basically and i had one class i was teaching a workshop at general assembly in san francisco and it was a really sharp inquisitive class and they literally were like, well, what's next? And like, they want to know what's the step you do and then what? And I remember being on the whiteboard and drawing and then running out of room and having to go down because I never really articulated the steps. So it just congealed from working on all these different companies and startups and talking to people and then they made it. And so then, but it, it wasn't really... It's funny, if you look at old presentations, it wasn't until I sat down and write the book that it all really came together. Like, how many layers is it? What are the steps? What exactly is it? Is it this step? Is it that step? That it really clicked. So it was cool to sit down and actually create it. When you can see earlier, not so refined versions of it in earlier talks that had some of the concepts. So yeah, it was when I sat down and wrote the book that it all came together. And then, yeah, and I have a lot of case studies where we walk through, like in today's workshop that I'm going to do, we're going to walk through Airbnb going through that pyramid, basically. And then I have other examples, too, of other companies like Uber and Insta, Instagram that you can see how it's very clear in hindsight that they knew what they were
0: doing from the documents that they created at the time. Excellent, yeah. Yeah, when it comes time to actually make this make sense to others, kind of figure out what's the best way to communicate that and the, your pyramid and step process. Yeah. So, so let's get started on just a okay. little bit more detail. We have a target customer to serve. Yes. How do we identify that target customer?
1: Yeah, everything starts with that. And it's funny because another overlay on this that's really important is the idea of problem space versus solution space. I've been talking about that since 2006. And so I'm really excited to hear you hear more people mentioning problem space. And I'm, again, my background's engineering. And in my first job out of college was designing submarines. And we would get really clear on the requirements. What are the technical requirements? Before we would do any designing or solutioning, we'd have to get really clear on what does this system need to do? Like in the abstract, like in that somewhat abstract where we're not talking about the solutions, right? So it got ingrained in me early on from that background. But basically, problems don't exist in a vacuum. Customers have the problems, right? And so we have to get really clear on who it is because the details of who is doing has the problem or the need that we're trying to address will change how we solve it, basically. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because a lot of times in my workshops, I'll, when I'm talking about problem decision space, I'll be like, hey, who knows the user story template as a blank type of customer, I want to be able to blank so I can blank. And usually everybody puts their hand up. Now, the beauty of that is you start off with as a blank type of customer. It's like you ground it in who the customer is. It forces you. So it's kind of like a checklist that helps keep you honest and helps you not deviate and get in trouble by not getting clear on who the customer is or jumping in and what the solution should be, right? What this really comes down to is market segmentation. How do we segment the market? How do we get clear on our users? That actually was my question for Hershey yesterday. I was curious. It's always fun when you see a company that's really sophisticated about their segmentation. When I was at Intuit, which is where I started my product career, we, we had a great, we actually hired an external firm and agency that helped us. And we had this amazing segmentation of the personal finance space. And when you see it, it's cool. They do a statistical analysis to, to factor it down. What are the key questions that help you identify? I could ask you five questions about personal finance and put you in one of these eight buckets basically. So that's what you want to do is segment. And basically the main ways of segmentation are demographic, right? It's like who you are, like age, income, things like that yep. for B2B which a lot of people work in. There's firmographics, the natures of the firm, what space are they in, how much revenue they have, which geography are they in. And that's the one that most people go to right away because it's the easiest to get your head around. Our product is for 30-year-old men or women in their 40s or college kids or retirees. But an important thing to think about when you're doing segmentation is the difference between correlation and causality. And so demographics is usually not as close on causality. It's just correlation. But it's a good starting point. Start there. The next one is attitudinal. So if demographic is who you are, attitudinal is what do you believe, what do you value, what's important to you, what do you say, kind of, yeah. So basically an example of that might be how much do you care about the environment? You could have 18 year olds that care a lot about the environment or 18 year olds that don't care. So it's orthogonal to the demographics, it's an independent dimension. And then the third one is behavioral. Instead of it being like who you are or what you think or value, it's what are you actually doing, like actual behavior. And a common behavioral segmentation a lot of people have is like power users, the people that use their product a lot, way more than anybody else versus the lightweight users. And then the final one is needs-based, basically, where you're actually segmenting. You're getting so clear on the needs that you say, okay, this segment has needs A and B. This other segment doesn't have need A, but they have need B, but they also have need C, right? And that's, at the end of the day, the closest to the causality when you can get to that. And sometimes they get the question, well, which of these should I use? You should use all four. Peel, I use the analogy of peeling an onion, and you want to triangulate and peel. And, get, and in the workshop, I talk about examples where somebody start out with a high-level description, and then you realize it's not adequate, right? And one of the things that can tell you a hint or that will tell you you're not clear enough is if you go out and you interview, say, 10 of your target customers, and five of them love your prototype, and five of them do not like your prototype that's a hint that you haven't segmented your market enough. You haven't peeled the onion, you're missing something. What is that salient attribute that explains why these five liked it and these five didn't? And a simple example might be, say you have some e-commerce SaaS software, and then you realize, oh, these five that liked it, they don't manage their own inventory, but these other people that, didn't like it, they managed our inventory and our product didn't meet their needs in that area. So that, that would be an example of saying not all e-commerce are the same. Some manage their inventory, some don't. That's a salient attribute that we missed. And then by adding that, it adds
0: predictive power to your model, basically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Starting with who we're going to serve is really important. Yeah. And Often there's a lack of clarity of that in the beginning. I'd like to see groups niche down much more specifically because it's easier to expand to attract others. But if you're not clear about who you're starting with, you don't know what you're really gonna be building. I to.
1: Totally agree, two follow on points. One is if we're not aligned on the customer, of course we're gonna have different agreements of features and prioritization, right? If you think we're serving this kind of customer, I think we're serving this other kind of customer, we haven't talked about it, and we're arguing about features to build and priorities, that's one way you're, so that's part of it too, is the product market fit pyramid, lean power process, helps teams get aligned. And so the last piece on this is just to create a simple persona, right? Just create, that way it's a written artifact, because a lot of what we do in the product world, it's like tribal lore, it's cave people stuff. It's like, I heard Chad said we're targeting truck drivers. Well, yeah, I heard the CEO say that. It's like that verbal, so it's like a simple, a lot of my stuff is focused on a single, simple one-page document that captures your key hypotheses to get everybody on the same page, right? Yep, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Okay, good. So start with a good grounding in the customer. And then we're going to try to discover those un- underserved needs. That's right. Yeah. And so this is where the problem space solution space comes in, right? Because what happens,
1: we basically, when you stick to that user story template as a blank, I want a blank so I can blank. That last part, so I can, is really the essence of the problem space. Why is this important to a customer? How is it going to create value for them, right? And if we just say, well, I think we should add this widget or build this feature, that's in the solution space, right? And we're not getting clear. So what happens a lot is people go rushing in and say, I think we should build this cool feature, or I think we should build this product and they're rushing to the problem space without getting clear on who's a customer and what problem is it going to solve for them. I call it solutionitis, and there's like the quote, people don't want a quarter-inch drill, they want a quarter-inch hole, and so on, right? So that's that, is we want to start in problem space. And one of the things I like to tell product managers is we're all familiar with the tree that leads to good products of good cross-functional collaboration between product managers, developers, and UX designers, right? If you look at successful products, usually they've had a good, they're staffed in those areas, and there's good collaboration going on. If we just summarize, oversimplify everybody's job with one word, I like to say, what is developer's main job? Is to develop, it's pretty straightforward, to develop. Designer's main job is to design, pretty straightforward. So what's PM's main job? It's not manage, that's too high level and vague. I would argue it's define, defining who's our customer and what are their needs, defining the problem space. Because at the end of the day, maybe we do a little bit of coding or something, but we're not really coding. And we're, Maybe we fill in the gaps for design if we don't have a designer, but at the end of the day, That's our unique value add to the product team is getting really clear because if we're not thinking about the customer and their needs, who else on the team is going to be thinking about it? So I like to map out a problem space. I call it a problem space definition. You can brainstorm all the benefits and then you organize them and then you have the benefits that you could address and then the next question becomes, okay, out of these like 20 problems we could solve for people, which one should we solve? Which brings up the question of prioritization and that's where the underserved word is in there, right? where you can imagine, say there's two needs, say you're perfectly happy with how you book restaurant reservations today. That's probably not the biggest opportunity to go after because you're already happy. So, that's what that would be a well-served need versus another need that you're like, hey, I haven't found a good solution for this yet. That would be an unmet or underserved need basically. And without going into too much detail, I have an importance versus satisfaction framework that I use to basically buy or define how well-served or underserved is a given need. And basically, this comes from my work at Intuit. When I was trying to prioritize features, I tried a lot of different methodologies, and this is the one that really seemed to work the best. And the general idea is the importance is for whatever customer problem or need, we're talking about how important is it to the target market segment. That's the other thing that's important, it's the function of the segment. If you change the segment, the importance is gonna change, right? It's kind of what defines the segment is they have a cohesive answer to the question. So how important is the product, is the problem? And then on the satisfaction is however they're getting that met today, how satisfied are they, right? And so long story short, if you have high importance needs, if people are telling you this is really important and they're telling you, I have not yet found a satisfactory solution, I have low satisfaction, then that's where the upper left quadrant is where opportunities live. You want to avoid the low importance quadrants because you're not going to create customer value. At the end of the day, you create value by solving high importance needs. And then the upper right quadrant with his high importance, it's also high satisfaction, yeah, it's important, but they have a solution that works pretty well for them. That's where I call it a competitive market. And that's where it's like you really got to clear on how you're going to be 10x better. And your people say you need to be 10x better. So that's for that quadrant. And you can do it. You can try to go for a disruptive innovation where you redefine the satisfaction axis. That's riskier. If you just can go in that upper left quadrant. If people are telling you this is important and I'm not satisfied with the solution yet. That's right. where they're all kind of, yep. basically. And so that I, we hear the stats like 80 plus percent, 90 plus percent, depending on study of new products fail. The top two pieces of advice I would tell people is start with the problem space before you go to solutions Absolutely. and just run those through important satisfaction. If you can find a problem in that upper left quadrant, your odds of success are gonna go up significantly.
0: Good. Yeah, the way I always remind people of that is fall in love with the problem, not the solution. Yeah. And and too often when you know we're both engineers, too often we like to just dive in and start creating. Do we really understand the problem well enough yet?
1: Well, it's tough because developers, part of why do we have the solution first thinking, we live in solution space. Like Developers have to, sh- code in the solution space right. and ship working code. Designers have to design pixels and UIs in the solution space. So again, it's, well, who's on the hook for really thinking about problem space on the team? It should be the product manager. If the product manager is spending all their time in solutions, then nobody's thinking
0: about space. We might not be building the right thing. Yeah. OK. So we got target customer, underserved needs. Next up, our value prop. Our value proposition. Yes. So your value proposition, that's a
1: word in, in our world, we have a lot of different terms that people use and sometimes they have different things. For me, value prop specifically means okay, out of all these brains these benefits that we brainstormed that we could do, what are we gonna actually promise to customers and communicate to them that our product does for them? And then the second part is, and how what's our plan for how it's gonna do so in a way that's better than the competitions, right? So to get tactical about, it's like, how are we gonna deliver higher levels of satisfaction? That's what it really comes down to, right? And that's the other cool thing about the importance of satisfaction framework is you get out of this this black and white thing of it's a must have feature, so we gotta do it, or we don't, or it's P1 or P0. It's like gives you a way to relatively say how important different things are. But the value problem, that's where actually I like to apply the Kano model. So before I moved out to Silicon Valley to go to business school, I got a master's in industrial engineering where I studied lean manufacturing and quality and all that. And I learned the Kano model, which comes from the auto manufacturing days of quality. And it basically is a way, a categorization scheme for these needs or problems. There's three relevant categories that come up. The first and easiest to get your head around is performance benefit or feature. So, and basically the way this works in the graph, it's hard to describe visually, but is on the X axis is how fully does a product meet the need? You can think about from 0% on the left to 100% on the right, right, so not met at all to fully met. And then on the y-axis is how satisfied, how much customer satisfaction or dissatisfaction results, uh, occurs as a result of that, right? So above the axis, it's positive satisfaction, below the axis, it's negative satisfaction or dissatisfaction. And if it seems a little complicated, the cool thing, performance is like more is better. So if we were in the microprocessor chip business, everybody else's microprocessor chip, yeah, two gigahertz and ours is three, we're outperforming by one gigahertz. So one of the tips that you're talking about performance is that you can quantify it usually right or miles per gallon for a car there are two cars everything about them is identical the price the specs but then all of a sudden one car has twice the miles per gallon all our things being equal i'm going to pick that car so that's and that's where most of the competition happens on these performance dimensions where it's like oh we're five percent better we're ten percent better we're 20 better whatever it is and that's the easiest to get your head around the second category is must-haves so the way this one works is assume for a minute your product fully meets the must-have needs it doesn't actually make any customers happy That's the definition. That's the Kano Mile definition. Now I know must have is a term that gets thrown around pretty loosely in a lot of companies, especially by hippos and big stakeholders. Like we must have this feature, but a must have feature means if you don't have it, customers like won't buy your product because it's an example that would be like HIPAA for health tech. If You just gotta have it. No one's gonna go, oh my gosh, you have HIPAA? I'm so excited, let me sign up. It's like, no, you just have to have it, or encryption, or security, whatever. And then as if as you fail to meet that need, then you start to have people be increasingly dissatisfied. So some people call it table stakes kind of thing. And then the third category is delighters. So delighters are kind of like the opposite of a must have. If you don't have a delighter, it doesn't cause a problem because people aren't expecting to be there. And in fact, yesterday when Hershey (laughs) busted out that huge table, I took a picture and I said, hey, I like to talk about delighters. Here's a table full of delighters. I was not expecting, to get some yummy Reese's peanut butter cups when I came to the PDMA conference. So I was delighted to have those, right? So that's an example of a delighter. And uh, the example, when I talk about cars, I talk about is like GPS navigation. GPS navigation is a solution. When it first came out on cars, I had to get people, hey, what problem did it solve? It helps you figure out how to drive to where you're going. Okay, before that was out, what were the other solutions? Well, paper maps back in the day. Yep or you'd wing it, or you'd stop and ask for directions. There was a period of time when you could print out your maps, but there was no connectivity in the car, so you'd print it and bring it with you in the car, and then the GPS comes along, and then, you know, the first few cars that have it, it's a delighter, but then over time, every car gets it, and now we all just use our phones. So That's the other thing is solutions come and go much more quickly than the problems. The problem, the need to figure out how to drive somewhere has been around right? And so it just shows you that things can migrate over time. So the things that start out as delighters eventually can become must-haves in the same category over time. You just can keep up with the Joneses there. And so what you do basically is this is also in other talks, I call it product strategy. It's the essence of how is your product going to create more value for customers than other products. So we create a grid where we list for our category one per row in a table. What are the must-have benefits? What are the performance benefits? What are the delighters? Then we have a column for each of our key competitors and we analyze them and we do competitive analysis. And honestly, low, medium, high is adequate. As long as the relative scores make sense. Oh so, yeah, these guys are better at security. These guys are better at this. And then we have a column for our product and that's where we look at that and we go, okay, given where the competitors are on these benefits, how are we going to be better? Which row are we going to own or dominate? And that's really the essence of a product strategy and differentiation of your product. And then you know, this is a, we want to we want to get clear on this because the very next step is going to be feature set and MVP. And so that's the connection, right? This is the last step in the problem space, getting really clear of how we're going to create more value. And then, of course, when we go to the MVP, we don't just forget about everything we've done. Our MVP better back up whatever we just did. If we th- our bet is that our product's going to be better because it's going to be more reliable or faster on this thing, well, then, gosh, our MVP <laughs> is how we test it. So we, that's, we
0: better make sure it addresses those differentiating needs that we just did. Okay. Is there a format for a value proposition that you like to communicate as you're telling the story about a product? Well, so
1: one is the thinking work is that table. So I call it a value prop grid or a prop strategy table where it's like you can see the benefits that are relevant in the space categorized by must have performance to lighter. And then you can see the competitors. And so you can, again, it's a simple one page thing in my workshops, we do it when I mean, you create it and you have to have tough debates because human nature is Let's be high all the things, but you can't do that. So then there's a separate step of, okay, given that we've got that thinking work done of how we're going to be better or different, now how do we message it? position it and message it. And actually, I just, every once in a while, I give a talk on that, where instead of going down the product path of, okay, once we get our value prop, we're going to go MVP and UX, there's a messaging path where we go to positioning and messaging. I actually just gave a talk recently, gave that talk again recently. I hadn't given it in years at the meetup, so that's available out there. But you can see some great taglines out there. It's almost like a separate exercise of, now that we've done the thinking work, what's the copywriting work to do this? And the example that I share in that talk is like the iPod, Songs in Your Pocket, right? It's a great example of when you de- when you unpack it, it basically is subtly, very efficiently, and very smartly that's communicating compelling. a heck of a lot of songs in a very small space that you can take with you. That's basically, instead of saying it that way, it's, so that's
0: an example of good messaging of a value problem. Before we lose track of that, where can people find that presentation?
1: Well, the easiest place would be the YouTube channel. So YouTube... Okay. Dot com slash my name dan Olson, D-A-N-O-L-S-E-N. That's where we put not only my speaking videos, but all the videos of the people that I've hosted at my meetup. So I for almost eight years now, I've been every month hosting a top product speaker and our community is growing to over eleven thousand people now. We used to be in person <laughs> And then with COVID, we took it online, which actually was, was a blessing because we just got a lot of people from all over. You don't have to be within an hour of Mountain View, California. So right. we got people from every, all over the states, other countries. So that's great. So, yeah, that's the easiest place. My videos are there. But then again, all the other videos, we've got over
0: 11,000 subscribers there. So that's, a good, that's the easiest place to do it. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. Good community to go hang out with. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So now we're into MVP land. And you broke this out into two separate categories, features and the prototype itself.
1: Yeah, that's right. So yeah, yeah. Sounds
0: like we have the features coming out of our value prop work. Well, the value prop is, it gives us the
1: kind of the foundation. Okay, if we are going to be the fastest, or let's say we're going to help you do this workflow 20% better than any other SaaS tool out there. Okay, great. Now, how do we back that up? What are the features that we need to do? Like maybe it's auto categorization or something, right? Something what is it? What are the features that are going to back that up? So this is finally now we've got a solid grounding in the problem space. Now. Again, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So we say, okay, for this performance benefit that we're banking on being the best, now let's brainstorm all the features. So it's a fun part where you can brainstorm and say, given this is the, now that we've got clarity, this is the problem we want to solve, let's, brainstorm, let's suspend judgment and brainstorm all the different features we can think of, right? And then basically you brainstorm and then you do that for each of the benefits. And then you need to break it down. This is where your roadmap comes in. And ROI. you also need to do some ROI analysis here, right? So the other part of prioritization is ROI because we have not yet talking about talk spoken about the engineering effort it's going to take right so this is where you know you have your value prop benefits for each benefit you brainstorm the different feature ideas i like to use the word feature chunks because usually the first time you brainstorm a feature there are ways you can go back and break it down into smaller chunks right and that's what agile is all about breaking things into smaller sizes pieces and then you can run roi through it and then you can have a roadmap and basically the way i like to do the mvp roadmap is basically have those same benefits from your value prop, the must haves, performance, and delighters as swim lanes in your roadmap. Those are your swim lanes. And then you deploy the feature chunks by version in, in lines. You say, okay, for V1, which chunks that we brainstormed do you need to be in there? Usually, you need to have the must haves in your V1, and then whatever special sauce your value prop was supposed to be. If you're going to improve productivity of this workflow, you better have something in your MVP that improves the productivity of the workflow, right? And then you can build out your value prop over time. So just, that's the idea. And, and that simple one-page roadmap visualization anchored on your value prop helps everybody understand what's in scope and out of scope and not fall into, hopefully avoid the trap of the kitchen sink where it's got to have everything in it, right? And, uh, and that's the problem. The, it's ironic because the whole point of MVP is to try to prevent you from overscoping your product before you've confirmed whether or not you're heading in the right direction. But the, one of the top mistakes teams make is they overscope their MVP. And it, it's like the spaghetti against the wall. It's like, hey, I'm worried that if we only launch with those two features, we might not hit the mark. None of the spaghetti may stick to the wall. So why don't we just throw in a feature or two extra just in case? So it comes out of this insecurity. It comes from a good place of, hey, I want our product to do well. But if you follow the process I described, you have a logical marching order of why you think those two features are going to be adequate. And you're not just throwing spaghetti at the wall, right? So that's, the, that's one of the mistakes I see teams make. So by having that visualization, You can have those tough debates about do we really need feature three in version one or can it wait for version one point one? And it's always funny when I do this exercise because people get so fired up. It's like we gotta. There's these pet features that come up in my case studies, and they are pounding on the table saying we gotta have it. I wouldn't ship without it. And then I like to remind them who's the target customer again because they're not the target customer. And so what happens is that's the other thing is people fall into the trap. In the absence of having a clear target customer to focus on, they advocate for their needs and their preferences, and they make the mistake of thinking they're the target customer, right?
0: So it's just funny to bring, and they suddenly go, oh, I'm doing that, and they realize it, so. Yeah, that seems to be a common problem with MVPs, is that scope creep, in a sense, that we're putting much more in than we probably actually need to. Yeah. And this gives you a mechanism, right? The previous steps are really understanding the problem space, gives you a mechanism to have those discussions. Exactly, yeah, exactly, yeah.
1: And it's tough, because... Yeah, people people often advocate. And it's funny because I also, in longer versions of, I'll bring up the Iron Triangle where you got the fundamental constraints of like resources, time, scope, and quality. And so what happens is you're sitting around the conference room on your Zoom call And you say, okay, I think we can get by this MVP with just these three features. And then some stakeholder goes, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're not going to have feature X in version one. I think big client A is going to have a chest thumping and banging and noise. And and so then the team, but nobody talks about, oh, that's going to delay by six months, six weeks. No one talks about the trade-off, right? And so I use this analogy of any feature. When we're talking about any feature idea, of course, it's a good idea. Right? And there are some bad dumb feature ideas but most of them are good they're going to create some value the question is which ones are going to create the most value for customers because we have limited resources right so it's like any feature in the moment we're talking about it sure why not do that so it's kind of like a cube who could say no to this cute but look at this cute puppy who could say no to this right the problem is we have twenty puppies and we have to prioritize the puppies basically right so it's easy to fall in love in the moment with that one feature but we need to make trade-offs.
0: Yeah, and it's a mistake to think that no matter how long it takes when we get it to market, it's going to be the best product. So we're just going to do it right the first time. That's right. It's like you don't know yet. Hopefully you've done the market research. We've talked about through the steps here. We've identified the features our customers would value, but you still, you're learning goes to a whole other level when customers have it in their hands.
1: I totally agree. You should do all the steps that we're talking about here with a prototype and that helps you work off rough edges and refine things. And then you can take that so far and then to your point, when you actually launch your get your product, working product in people's hands, that takes it to the next level of validation and yep. learning, right? And so I like to sometimes in the book, I mention this analogy of fishing. I'm not a fisherman, but if I wanted to catch a trout, what do I have to do? I have to stop and think about what do trouts like to eat And that's when I'm going to put the bait on my hook and throw it in the water, right? So when you actually launch your product, it's like throwing your product is like the bait. You throw it in there, and you may be going after a certain type of fish, a certain B2B type of company, but maybe a different fish goes for it, right? Or no fish goes for it, or you figure it out. Anyway, yeah. So you want to do all this stuff with prototype before you launch to de-risk it as much as you can. But then to your point, until it's actually live,
0: they're kicking the tires, using it, that takes it to the next level. Yeah, which I think is the motivation for recognizing the sooner we can get it in the customer's hands. Exactly the better. Exactly. Want that one more feature? What is that going to cost us in right. terms of feedback? Right. The customer? And what happens, it's funny, is people act, if
1: I don't get this feature, and by the way, I should clarify, we talk about MVP, when we talk about a V1 product, most people understand how MVP applies. So we're building a Blue Sky V1 product, we have to decide what's in scope for V1. But it applies at any product milestone. You can have a minimum viable feature, what's, what needs to be in scope for this feature or not? For a sprint, what needs, what stories absolutely need to be in scope for this sprint versus not. So it's really a philosophical mindset thing that applies at any product milestone. And basically, the people act, if I don't get this in this milestone, it's never going to get built. And, no one's actually saying that might be the pattern, and I know there are certain places where they never get to go back. Part of what happens is, hey, yeah, you'll get to go back and do version one point one, and then it's on to the. I call it shiny object syndrome. I'm like squirrel, it's like they move on to the next product, and so the teams have been conditioned to know, gosh, we never get a chance to go back. So let's pack all the spaghetti we can in here to throw it against the wall. But assuming that's not happening, what are we really saying? And this is what happens at the workshop. We'd be like, you can't just launch this November first and then work on that new feature in the next month and fast follow December 1st with that extra feature? Like, that's what we're really talking about. Do you really wanna delay the whole product for this one feature by a month? Or do you wanna just, no, let's launch it without it, and then we'll fast follow a month later? Do they, people, they don't think about it that way. It's, oh, I'm fighting, it gets emotional for people. It's like, I gotta have this feature. And it's funny, because one of my clients, like, I gave this workshop, and some stakeholders like, oh, I can't believe, This especially comes up when you're refactoring or replatforming, right? If you've got some legacy platform that you built over eight or 10 years, and it's like on Cobol or Pascal crumbling down, and you've got to write it in the new hot, sexy technology, a reactor, whatever, Python. And then it's, okay, well, how long is it gonna take? Well, how long did it take to build the old one? About eight or 10 years? Okay, it's probably gonna take, we know a little bit more now. So that's where people get into these MVP debates about, well, if you insist that the new platform do everything the old platform does and then some, you're never gonna dig your way out of that hole, right? And so in that kind of a context, one of my clients said, yeah, someone from sales, the team had proposed this MVP, and someone from sales says, oh, my gosh, I can't believe you're not going to launch with Feature X. IBM relies on that feature. IBM needs that feature. This one engineer went and looked at the logs and found out that engine, IBM had never used that feature, right? So a lot of it's not data-driven. It's just right. gut. It's the spaghetti against the wall again. So. Yeah.
0: yeah, having actual data helps. Yeah. Okay, so I just want to make sure we clearly separate this MVP feature from MVP prototype. Yes. So we've selected the features. That yes. We've done the good work to say this is what we're moving forward to. Yeah. And now we're going to build the prototype That's that right. we're going to actually try to uh, next come in, test with customers. Tell us more about the prototype. Definitely. Yeah. So what we're trying to do in the previous step to be really clear is
1: identify what's the functionality that should, needs to be in scope and what can wait. That's yeah. the MVP discussion, right? Now at that point, your definition of the functionality is words, right? Maybe you've got a set of user stories. It starts out with a block on a roadmap, right? Maybe it's five words, and then you flesh it out with user stories but it still is no UX yet, right? So it's like, okay, cool, we're going to improve this workflow by 10%. Here's our plan for doing it, auto-categorization, yada, yada. Okay, great. Now, what does that actually look like and how does the user use it? So that's where the UX comes into play. And so the features are in the solution space. The UX is in the solution space. And one of the things that's really cool is if you have a design resource, a good design resource, they can help you explore the solution space. For any given like set of user stories we have, there's a million different ways we can implement the UX for it. There's some that are gonna be better and easier than others, and there's actually a good feedback loop that happens with good designers. They start to explore the UX, and it actually helps you think of additional features or refine your features, or even go back and refine your problems. Oh, we didn't think about that. When we're auto-categorized, does it need to do this or this? We didn't think about that. Oh, what if the results are longer than one page? How do we handle that? Stuff you wouldn't think about, right? So in a sense, working through the UX helps even further refine things. But the main reason we wanna do it is so that we can show it to a customer and get feedback because No matter how good we are and how smart we are, nobody nails it the first time. Like you mentioned it briefly, something I wanna pick up on is you don't know what you don't know. The metaphor I always think of is like a bullseye, like an archery target bullseye. People think if they spend more and more time doing this big upfront research and all this stuff, they're gonna get closer to that middle of the bullseye, but that's not the case. They don't even know what they don't know. And so it's like premature optimization. So to your point, let's get quickly, this is not about some major research project. Of course, we wanna talk to customers and check our hypotheses, but let's quickly get to that prototype Because then we can get in front of people's hands, and that's when the real learning starts. And they're going to go, oh, what's this? And they're not going to know, and things like that. And so, again, the next level will be after we've worked off the rough edges with the prototype and validated things, then we'll do the same thing with our live alpha or beta or whatever we're going to do. But there's so much rough edges and things that aren't right yet that we don't even know until we have a prototype and show it to people. And it's way better, obviously. If we can iterate in prototype land instead of code land, things get way slower, and you get sunk costs and people like, they, oh, but
0: I wrote the code yeah. this way. They also get attached to it. They get attached like, to it
1: because, oh yeah, the object model I wrote doesn't support that new way of doing it. Is you get you the second you start coding, you're introducing solution space constraints that can limit your your ROI and your effectiveness in the future. So yeah,
0: okay. So any tips on that testing part?
1: Oh yeah, definitely. I'm a big fan of interactive prototypes. So the good news there is the tools have there's amazing tools, right? The you can start off with hand sketches. That's a good place to start. And then I'm a big fan of Balsamic for low fidelity. So when I describe the part, the type of prototypes you can do, there's low fidelity and interactivity kind of a range. Balsamic is great because it's like low fidelity wireframing tool that PMs can use. Especially, I recognize not every PM has a design resource right all the time. So sometimes you got to fill in the gaps. Good PMs fill in the gaps. And, uh, and uh, basically, so that's a good tool. And then InVision is a good tool above that. But now Figma's has taken over this whole world. So you've got used to be like you'd proto- you create your high fidelity prototype in one tool, like Sketch or Photoshop, and then you'd export the images into InVision. Well, with Figma, it just kind of all one tool that does it all. So that's why it's part of why it's so popular. Plus, it's cloud collaboration that can happen. So, it's never been easier to get to an interactive prototype. Click what I mean by interactive is basic like clicking and tapping. You're not going to go code the whole thing in JavaScript just to see how it works, but the animations and the interactions are getting more complex. So anyway, that's basically it. And then you want to prototype your MVP, go show it to people, and then kind of want to pattern match the feedback that you get and say, "Okay, we talked to 10 people, 8 out of 10" Couldn't figure out how to get through the new user flow. And this is where it's also funny, where we talk about small sample sizes. Some people are so data-driven, they're like, whoa, that's the small sample size. I don't know if it's statistically significant. Well, okay, 8 out of 10 people can figure out. Do we need to go test with another 100 or 200 to really? We probably have a problem. We need to use common sense, right? Some of the easiest things you can do to get better results is how you ask your questions of people if I say I show you a prototype and I go, hey, Chad, that was easy to use, wasn't it? That's a leading question. It sounds like a question, but it's not a question. A leading question sounds like a question, but I put the desired answer in the question. I've pressured you into answering it the way that I want. So we want to avoid leading questions. And then the next thing, not as bad, but bad, is closed-ended questions versus open-ended questions, right? If instead of that, I said, did you like that feature? It sounds like a fine question did you like that feature but what are the responses that i'm likely to get yes or no and look i know if you're the pm it's your baby you're like sitting there in the in your head like please say yes yeah, please yeah he said yes yeah and then you go to your boss and say hey eight out of ten people said they like our product but what did you really learn so i know it feels good in the moment but what did you learn you didn't learn why they like it you didn't learn why they didn't right so basically a closed question is any question that has limited response like yes no questions are closed now in in normal conversation they're great but when you're trying to do discovery and getting feedback, you want essay question answers, right? So instead, it's like, how do you start? It's literally, what words do you start your question? With? If you start your word with do you, did you, are you, you're setting it up for yes or no. Instead, you want to start with how, why, what did you think about that feature? Now you can't just say yes. You have to stop. You need to reflect on what you saw. I'm going to get much richer data and answer from you. And by the way, these interviews are awkward. So if you give someone an easy out, yes or no, they go yes, no, yes, no. They're not even engaging their frontal lobe. They're just like, Are we done yet? Can I go back? So you don't want to give people those easy outs, because they'll just say what you want. That's the other thing is people tend to be nice. So you want to debunk that at the beginning, too, and say, hey, the whole point of doing this with a prototype is so that we can change it. And so if we come out of this interview with no ideas on how to make it better, then that's actually
0: not helping us. So I try to flip it around and say, you're helping us by finding these problems, right? Yeah, prepare them for what's needed. Yeah. Okay, good tips. Okay, this helps a lot, taking us through the framework and represent it as a pyramid, starting with the customers at the bottom, understand their needs, putting together a value prop, doing that work to figure out where we're differentiated from our competitors in that value prop. That leading to features we should build for an MVP and keeping that as lean as possible, Mm -hmm. eliminate the waste in the process, prototyping to get it in front of customers and let them interact with it, and then getting that feedback from customers.
1: Yeah. And then when you, that last step, the step six in the process just connects the UX to the product, the, to the target customer at the bottom. And then you're going to iterate. You're, right. you're just kind of learning and iterating, seeing what you got, what you need to tweak. You could be adjusting the segmentation attributes on your customer and realize ah, it's actually not these people. It's slightly here or changing the problem you're solving or changing your value prop based
0: on what you go through. Excellent. Okay. And for resources for people and how to find out more about the work you're doing, you have the book that has more detail. We yeah. just scratch the surface sure. of the process. And so more tools in the book for sure. We talked about your YouTube channel. What's the best place for people to get... More information. The single place is just my website, which is my name,
1: dan-olson.com. So D-A-N-O-L-S-E-N.com. That has links to the YouTube channel, the meetup, upcoming speaking events, things like that. And then, yeah, and then YouTube.com slash Dan That's where all the videos live. The meetup.com/lean-product. hyphen That's our meetup of over eleven thousand people. It's free to join that community. Again, we have monthly speakers. I have Deb Blue coming up. Deb Blue is the CEO of Answersheet.com. Used to be a Facebook product exec. She's speaking in December about her new book, and then and then in January, I have Marty Kagan coming back for the seventh time. So Marty's spoken there six times so far. So yeah, so we've got a couple events in coming up, and uh, and then on Amazon, people can look about look up the book on Amazon. It's available Kindle, Audible hardcover. It's also available in Chinese, Turkish, and Polish. If people want good. some of those
0: languages. We have some international listeners. Yeah. So, Lean Product Playbook. Yeah. Very good. Okay. Dan, thanks again for being with us. Thanks, Jan. It was awesome. And listeners, as a reminder, if you do want a list of all the information we talked about, you'll find the show notes, detailed written summary, including a one-page action guide of some key takeaways here. We'll put the model in there for sure from Dan, and also the links to resources he shared. Those are at productmasterynow.com slash 424. Everyone, keep innovating. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.